What's up, everyone? This is Dariusz Kalbarczyk, co-founder of MG Poland, JS Poland, AngularMaster.dev and WorkshopFest.dev. Welcome back to Angular Master Podcast. Today, we've got a special guest from Cisco Canada, principally your architect, NGRX team member, Google developer expert, Angular Toronto organizer, Alex Okruszko. Hi, Alex. How are you? Hey, Derek. Uh, great. How are you? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So let's start to talk a little bit about NGRX, and then we switch to testing. What do you think about that? Oh, that's, that sounds like a great plan. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the first question is, uh, less than a year ago, you started working at Cisco. Uh, what are your tasks and what are you responsible for? Yeah, um, that was that was an interesting uh, switch for me. Um, I went from being, you know, long-time Googler uh, over seven years at that point uh, to another company. It was it's, it's a good jump for me, I think, as well. Uh, I was ready and excited for some interesting opportunities at Cisco, so I switched to uh, principal engineer uh, role, uh, leading a lot of the UI efforts in one of the biggest Cisco projects. Um, it's, it's quite a challenge. <laughs> uh, for example, at Firebase, a lot of things we had already, pol- you know, it was good, it was great setup, and we're just polishing things here and there. I uh, hear a lot of things needed a lot of attention. So uh, I was ready for that challenge and, uh, and trying to transform uh, how we do things uh, in, in a large project that has a lot of impact. So I joined a Cisco CX, which is a customer experience. Uh, it's, an, it's a new direction in Cisco. Uh, and this will be a window into many, many projects that uh, Cisco currently offers, trying to unify it under a single window, basically. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting challenge. So let's put it that way. But ever since we, we've been really hiring as well, a lot of great people. So I was able to bring a lot of, you know, strong members of community, Angular community on board as well. Over 20, I think at this point. Oh, wow. That's and, amazing. And yeah. Oh yeah. And we're, we're still hiring. Uh, it's mostly North America and Canada hiring, but uh, it, it's been, it's been going well there as well. So happy about that too. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's really interesting. Okay. Alex, you are a very famous and very active in Angiorex community. So let's start from the very beginning. Um, what is Angiorex and why do we need it? <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know how famous I am, but um, I, I've been trying to be active. And uh, my, my whole journey with Angiorex started um, back in early days in Firebase. Uh, so we pulled NGRX library into Google. It was the first project to use it. So I've been involved with this very, you know, very much. And by the time I left Google, over 400 Angular projects at Google were using NGRX. Um, being, you know, active on that side, trying to improve Firebase, how to use NGRX, uh, led me to, you know, be talking a lot with the, uh, uh, Mike, uh, Ryan, and, and Ren Roberts, who were basically the, the only two at that point working on this. Uh, Tim also, the driver, joined later. So, you know, so I've been talking to them how to improve this, how to improve that, and, and challenges we had, for example, at Firebase or at Google as a whole. And I was like sending uh, opening issue. Oh, we need to fix this. We need to <laughs> change that. How can we do this? And they're like, yeah, you're opening all of this. Why won't you create the PRs for those? <laughs> and and that's how I got pulled into the open source community uh, <laughs> and started contributing to NGRX. And then uh, and then that turned into more contributions to the point where like they're like, oh, you know what? Why won't you join on board as well? So uh, that was that was a, that was a great experience because since then I feel like I've done a number of uh, good changes. I started small. Uh, for example, I started with contributing, uh, you know, uh, create a selective factory, right? Like it's lesser known. 
but it was something that was solving a problem for us at that time. Uh, and then going more and more, um, I ended up uh, spearheading the initiative uh, to have less less code to for actions and everything else. So uh, that what that eventually led to discovering Nicholas Jameson TS action library and us adopting those create uh, create action create reducer functions. Um, which were, you know, uh, reducing uh, code uh, by a lot. So that that was another one, the big one, and and the final milestone. I think that was that's I feel real, really big contribution uh, is um, direct's component store itself. And again, it was solving a different problem. We can talk about it in in, in one of the other questions. But yeah, I that was the the other contribution contribution that you know kept me. With the community, uh, work at Cisco got me a little bit busier. Right, there's a lot of things that needed need to be um, changed, fixed, adjusted within there. Uh, so it's it's a little bit less time to contribute to Indirect as a whole. Which you know, every so often I just want to go back and, and <laughs> contribute a little bit more. But yeah, that kept me busy. Um, but you know, Indirect. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, it had its ups and downs in the community as well, right? Uh, but I feel Indirex is so powerful. And for any enterprise you know, enterprise uh, level applications, it's super critical. It's must. Especially, yeah, yeah especially, especially if uh, you have people who are trying to set up the proper architecture of the app of the app that understands uh, or with the team that understands what, what uh, state is in general. It's not, I'm not talking about interaction. It's what, what the state is, how it flows, where it's reused. Uh, what can we do to reduce things? What can we do to improve user experience? Um, how do we make sure that we handle all the errors and don't have those spinners for users? So for the team that tries to, understand state and deal with this, not like as a side effect almost, uh, but bring it into the main focus and conversation in the team around this. I think those teams can adopt Indirect's both component store and the global store and really use it to the max. And this is, and this is important, right? Because when we're structuring our applications and new applications, uh, a lot of times we think only about the components and how we structure our component tree. That's great, right? But one other thing that we should do, and and we have to do component tree because that's how Angular set up, right? You can't, yeah, yeah. You cannot not do that. Um, but then state becomes it's less less in your face, so to speak, right? It's it's less obvious, uh, and and not thinking about it ahead. Uh, results in so many other issues that I, I see now. Uh, things like, you know, abusing resolvers, putting things there that call other services all the time, or, or you know, even within the same component, calling multiple things at the same time for no reason, right? Nothing changes, but there are bugs somebody opened and you're trying to uh, fix it with some hack. So state has to be part of the conversation. Uh, and that's why, for example, things that we set up at, at Cisco is whenever we create a new feature, um, we have to do some planning ahead, right? That involves creating a design doc, technical design doc, uh, which outlines the typical, you know, objective, what we're trying to achieve, some background, uh, some design. But uh, the, that design has to include two things. It has to include what's your proposed component tree structure changes, for example, getting new components and how you position them, how do you put them together, uh, where it would make sense to use some content projections and things like that, which common components you might reuse, uh, how do you set up that tree? Uh, that's one. And secondly, how's the state? Where are you getting the state? Which APIs you're getting the state from? Uh, where are you gonna be storing that state? How are you gonna be sharing that state? Is it needed anywhere else? Uh, do adjustments to the current state would be needed. 
And it's very typical in the apps, especially in the enterprise where you have like user login, then it has some kind of customer situations, has some permissions and all of those things just float around, uh, user preferences and like those things just float around. And if you don't organize them, uh, you'll basically have a mess. <laughs> so um, from, from that perspective, uh, I feel in Jirex, you know, really shines in this in this situations uh, again both the global store and component store and um, as I, when I was saying the interacts has had ups and downs I you know sometimes I felt like I was kind of obligated to defend it right when somebody oh it's too much oh we don't need this we don't need that and I feel like you know get, getting a little bit defensive sometimes uh like hey you do need this because i seek and help you so i was trying to help that so uh, so much that i tried to convince somebody who's not ready to accept this and and uh since then i kind of backed away from that approach and uh taking in more like okay i can help you if you're willing to listen if you if we can have argumentative good uh discussion and providing the arguments uh supporting your problem then we can address it and and solve it and discuss it which i think leads to uh, another great conversations but then you know if we're if we're getting back to for example component store and the downs of ngrx um because again when when people say ngrx they typically mean the global store that's that's what's been popular for years and it's still really really popular However, some situations like component store would be a better fit. And um, that fit comes, uh, comes from, you still have this push-based architecture. You still have reactive container of state. Uh, but now you lose, so you have that interaction, right? Where you have push-based architecture. However, you lose the second layer of interaction, which is actions. So component store has no actions. It has similar reducer, we'll call, we'll call it updaters, right? Uh, it has effects, uh, it has selectors, uh, but it, it doesn't have actions, right? So you directly talk to the component store to ask it to do something. And that was, that was really helpful in some situations, but there's no need to have that you know, action layer that broadcasted to the entire state machine basically uh where you want to target certain things and sometimes you want to even destroy that state when you when your component is being destroyed as well so those questions were being asked right and before component store we were saying well yeah it, we don't have a good answer for that but now we do and these complement each other really really well uh and i'm i was happy to see a component store being embraced by Angular community as well. And, and uh, I think it was hovering around like 70,000 weekly downloads, which again, kind of shows you that people are embracing and uh, it's, uh, it, it's not at quite at 400,000 of the global store, but it's getting there and uh, you know, it's, it's now as a solid player in the state management uh, libraries. Right. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. I know it's probably a long answer by me on a lot of questions and I touched on a bunch of things as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, we just wanted to bring those things in. <laughs> yeah. So the next question is, um, is what is Angirex state management? So mm -hmm. can you elaborate on it uh, further? Yeah. Yeah. So as we, as we just discussed, state needs to be, state is there, whether you want it or not. And if you're not managing it um, explicitly, it just starts lingering in your application here and there. Uh, and it could do some damage. Right? Uh, and, you know, uh, typically when people talk about some of those things, they, they're just about performance, but performance, of course you care about performance, right? It's like, uh, I don't want to say your performance starts to do great because we want, oh, I should be worried about this performance does matter. And I need to do everything about it. But that's, that's, 
while it's true that improves the performance of the app, uh, we also want to have the clarity and uh, of, of entire system to have the clarity and to be able to scale further. Uh, that's one, two more things that Endurex state management or state management in generally provides you. It allows you to maintain high velocity of your products um, because um, I feel that, and sometimes you don't need it, right? There are two different apps. There's actually many different types of applications. But if you're working on the product on your web application that you want to be scalable and maintainable for the long run that has new features coming in, some features going out, you need to have an architecture that allows you to manage all of that. And for that, you do need to... um, not just quickly put things together and push it out. Sometimes you do have to school proof of concept. Uh, But then once you're serious about this, scalability and maintainability have to be accounted for. And you need to think about the state and manage it properly with any of the state management solutions. Uh, And Jurex is very popular for state management. So uh, Jurex, global store and indirect component store then can be further used to to help you deal with this it's a set of patterns it's a super high performing um library it's very well typed it's very well tested uh it's not gonna go out tomorrow uh it it has a strong community support behind it it has strong maintenance behind it uh it's so all of those things that you do want to have from the reliable library that you can put, uh, you can have your enterprise product rely on. You do want that. Uh, and it's proven over years as well. So those are things that I think are very important. Yeah, that's well said. So uh, what are the advantages of using NGRX store module? Yeah. So the, 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 the store itself is for global state management. Um, and you can, if you think about it, it's, it's basically a system um, where you have many, uh, many events happening in your app. Uh, be it something has loaded, some page has opened, user clicked somewhere. All of those things are basically some events in, this, in, the, in your app. Uh, and directs, takes an approach and turns those events, right, basically in, into actions. Um, so actions are events, and they are basically broadcast throughout the entire application, uh, and that allows different parts of application react to those and either trigger uh, some HTTP requests in effect or, um, or it would allow to reducers, which which basically a piece uh, like a special functions that allow you to um, change the state, right? You don't change state directly. Those reducers are those special functions that are responsible for their particular slice of state, right? For example, you can think of it, there's a reducer responsible for products and then another reducer responsible for customer ratings, right? Like they are different type and they're completely separate, but uh, when you have the first page open, for example, you might need the products, you might need the ratings, and your component is just broadcasting into the system that, hey, my page, this page has opened. I do something about this, right? And then you have different parts of the app who are responsible for those that particular state can you know be invoked. Go, you go fetch uh, some of the ratings. You go fetch some of the products. You combine them together and you provide it to the component, the component, awesome. Now I'm going to display this data. So that's, that's the nutshell, I think, of, uh, of Indirect Store, uh, this event-driven, action-driven uh, architecture. Can you explain how the various Angiorex store elements, such as store, state, reducer, action, and component communicate? Yeah, so that goes... 
uh, into this example, right? Where product page, for example, got open. So it creates this event, right? This action that something happened and it goes out. And now a number of things can react. Reducer can react. Reducer is again, the function that's responsible for, for uh, the slice of state. It's responsible. It knows how to change the state in a mutable fashion. So uh, the reducer will pick it up and say, maybe it's loading now, right? So it's changing the loading state. Then effect is the one responsible for uh, async operations, for example, network requests. So it'll pick that action up as well, saying, oh, I need to fetch the products now. Great. Uh, It goes out. Again, this is a synchronous operation. Uh, and, And once it fetches the product, it creates another action inside saying, oh, we got the product, we fetched the product, it's success, right? So now that action goes back into the overall general stream of all of these actions floating to the system. And some of the reducers like, oh, I know, I'm curious about that action. I I care about that action. And it's like, okay, now products. So the products reducer will pick it up uh, and and put the the products into the state. Uh, Now, selectors is another part of the system and what they do is they select they know how to select the state from the global store and they can transform it uh they can select from different parts as well for example you can select from ratings and select from product combine them together here's your view model that you can provide to the component so selectors are really really powerful so they select it and they provide an observable, right? Uh, so that means that whenever the state changes in the store, your components will be automatically notified as well, right? Because it's an observable stream, which is another really cool part. Uh, and, and then component finally consumes uh, selector and pushes that uh, into the template through the async pipe, which unwraps the observable and provides the value for the template. Uh, that's basically how they communicate with each other. Uh, and uh, that's, that's uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great way, I think, to, to communicate <laughs> there. Yeah. Uh, you are a big fan of testing, isn't it? Yes, I'm, I'm quite... Um, so testing, I actually came from testing background. Um, early in my career, I was doing... Um, a lot of auto test automation, um, building test frameworks, setting things up as well in some companies. So uh, that's where I, I came. Um, and uh, then I went to, uh, eventually got to Google. And that is where uh, the testing culture is really, really strong, right? And and that's quite interesting. So. The, the it, Google's, you know, is a very data-driven company. So they they analyze a lot of things. And, and one thing that they found out very early on is that, you know, like manual tests are great than no tests at all, right? Like you, they're great. Um, and they can, you know, uh, you can basically duct tape your initial tra- testing strategy that way. Uh, but they're inefficient. Uh, many of tests become, you know, really a problem when your product starts to release more frequently because uh, you will, you don't have time for it and that's how you get regressions and people are really not good at doing repetitive tasks anyway. And what Google find out, and it's really just broadcasted as a great, you know, as a message in the entire company is that, failing to automate like the integration tests and, and the unit tests and all of those kind of tests early on, not only fails to save company time, but actually results in a lost time in the development cycles later on as the product continues. So while your initial velocity of a product without tests or without proper tests or without, you know, is fast because you don't waste waste time writing tests 
Sayo fast, right? I can create more, right? Because this is a typical problem that I hear. How can I justify adding another half the time for a specific ticket just to add tests? My manager says, no, we can't do that. We need to have the product out the door and continue to deliver things. But that actually decreases the velocity. And, and this is a, like a, a silent killer because nobody sees that. It's almost like, you know, unmanaged state. If you, if you don't know that it's, it's unmanaged, you just, you still have it. It's just all over the place. It's the same with, the, uh, with, with tests as well, right? Not having them reduces your velocity and speed. Uh, I had examples where a team spent hours just trying to find exactly uh, where things were coming from because, again, um, there was no test for, for, for it and things were breaking and, <laughs> and it was a pain to find things, right? So that's, that's why I think testing is, is really important. Um, but it's also important to have the right testing. So that, that's, that's where I, I stand. Are different types of tests, unit, integration, end-to-end, bringing more value than others? Yeah, so um, all the different types of tests, right? There are, and again, when we're talking about testing pyramid, when we're talking about testing, testing pyramid like always comes to mind, right? There is this E2E integration, a unit test. Yes. Uh, and, and it's actually, it's actually true that <laughs> they are, uh, there are different types and they're valuable in their own way, right? For example, Unit tests are your smallest kind, um, and they're validating that specific unit that it works correctly. And and let, let's get in a second what does it mean works correctly because that's also a great conversation. Uh, integration typically go into larger scale, and when I call integration, um, I typically mean that, for example, in in a web application um, space. That means that you're, you built your entire value application, uh, but you don't talk to any of the backends, right? All the backend responses and requests are mocked. Um, then basically you're testing in how your app uh, integrates with the backends. So if user interacts something with, through the DOM, does something, you send specific requests, uh, you get, you analyze that, you verify this, and then you provide some response and you, validate that UI shows certain things. Like that, that is integration for me. Uh, some call this end-to-end, but this is like app end-to-end. And again, the, there are so many ways to name things. Uh, but when I, when I hear end-to-end, typically for me, that means um, running the tests on the actual environment where your backends are involved, the front-ends involved, and those tests are, by definition, very brittle and very unreliable, and they should be very uh, small, small number of them. For some of the super critical user journeys, uh, mostly in a read-only way, because you know, you, and then the tests can run at each other. Uh, some test data could be missing altogether. Like that's not. Those 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 ones are basically just for basic validations and should be should be not a lot of them. Uh, your bulk should be again unit and integration, and you should be running those in your CI pipelines before you even submit your PR. Right before you allow a PR to get in, those should be should be there. So that's you know that's how uh, I I see those. Um, the, I think one of the important aspects, though, that I don't want to, us to miss is uh, why do we why do we need tests? What what why do we need them? And great question. And this is yeah. <laughs> and, and this is and this is the question that I think you know. Once you understand the answer, once you realize and have time to think about every single point of why we need them. It can, it can change how you see tests uh, because, again, why do we need them? Well, first, we want to verify, validate behavior. 
So the test validates behavior of your you know, unit or like component or service or your app as a whole. And that, that's important. It doesn't validate that something is clicked. It doesn't validate that this property is set. It validates behaviors. Basically, the public APIs, that's how you exercise your, um, your components, your, your services through the public APIs. And then those results in some calls. And then if you're probably, again, inputs, outputs. Given some inputs, it provides some outputs. Given, uh, given some user interactions, it, it calls something or produces certain outputs as well. So you validate the behavior of, of a thing. Uh, this is very important, I think, to understand it. And, and uh, during the talk that I'll have uh, on your conference in, in Japan in 2011, uh, I hope I can really show what that means and, and, and how, what it means for components, what it means for services. Um, that's very important to understand how we validate the behaviors. That's how we write useful unit tests, not unit tests for the sake of line coverage, or, or, but it's useful that validates certain behaviors. So that's one reason why we test. Uh, the second one is actually document how your thing works. Um, I find it very frequently when somebody asks about interacts, how does it do this? And when, you know, I would react to this. I'm like, well, I just link the unit test that shows how it does. Unit tests are really great to document how it works in certain conditions because you test from different angles. You test your behaviors. So you can unit test, they're documenting your behaviors as well. Uh, even better than any of the docs can do. <laughs> <laughs> because they are really like a source of truth of how the behavior, how they behave. <laughs> exactly. So documented is another one and is really important one. Uh, the third one is, uh, is confidence. So the confidence that it gives you, the, the tests give you during refactoring or adding other things that, you know, usually in a large team, you don't know the code base, all of it. Uh, even for the small teams, right? You could, if, it, if it's your code, you could have forgotten what, what it was doing you know, three months after you wrote this, right? Uh, but when you change things, add things to it, you want to make sure that behaviors stay the same if, if it's unrelated refactor or the behavior changed uh, when you change something intentionally. So the confidence the tests give you uh, are really great because otherwise you Attached, refactored, nothing should have changed, but then your application breaks in production and oh, hot fix, <laughs> hot fix. Yeah, so the confidence, uh, if, the, if, the, if the code base is covered well with tests, uh, useful tests again, right? You don't, want, you don't want your unit tests to break every single time for no apparent reason. And that's, and that's when you start testing implementation details, that's what you get right? Your tests will be very, uh, you want them to be resilient, uh, not, not fragile, right? So if, if, you're, if you're starting to test implementation details, that's when you get into the fragile territory. Uh, yeah, but you do want to bring confidence when you test behaviors. And, and final one, so this is number four, right? Behaviors document, document the uh, documentation, uh, confidence, especially during refactorings. And the fourth one is design. They validate the design of your uh, app. And this is very frequently overlooked. If you feel something is really hard to test, that's a symptom of a design that needs improvement. And that's a, a good one because, you know, it's like, oh, it's so hard to test. Well, let's see why it's so hard to test, right? Uh, Angular uses dependency injection. So nice to, so easy to, to test those components. And for services, you don't even need dependency injection. You don't need testbed for components as well, or for services. Uh, and again, during the talk, I'll show how to, to do all of those different types of tests. Uh, but the unit tests, or actually any, any tests, they actually validate the design as well, which is pretty interesting, I find. So that, that's why we also want to 
to have those tests. So who does testing on your team, if any? Yeah, uh, that's a good one. Who does and who should be doing that? That's also interesting. Um, so I see frequently teams saying, okay, unit test, developer has to write unit tests. On some, some teams in some countries are also trying to uh, basically outsource the work for junior developer has to write my unit test. Like, that's definitely not the case. Uh, unit tests, for example, they have to come with PR, every PR. Uh, so it's not like I'll add tests later. They have to come with the same PR. And that means that it should be written by the same developer who is writing a piece of code. And ideally you have small PRs that you integrate fast and then you don't have like long-lived branches that you merge once in a year or something. Um, so fast integration, but it's a whole different uh, topic. Now, that, but that's typically understood and a lot of people kind of follow that. Uh, however, when we get into the integration, that's where there's a lot of divergence. There are different companies doing it different ways. Uh, and some say, you know, QA automation team should be writing those tests, uh, which I disagree, <laughs> uh, which I disagree with. Uh, if if nobody's doing it, at least somebody should be doing it, right? And so it's like, goes if there's no tests, we should at least have manual tests. Uh, if we have manual tests, uh, we should try at least have automation tests. Uh, and uh, if developers cannot write those tests, at least somebody should be writing like writing them. It's it's okay, but in the ideal world, uh, developers should be writing those tests. And and the reason for that is quality should be ingrained. The responsibility for the quality should be ingrained uh, into development process. Uh, how someone can be someone else can be responsible for the quality of the code that I write. That that doesn't fit well with me, right? So I see QA as a safety net, not as the gatekeeper of quality. They are not responsible for the quality. They are not, it's not their job to be responsible for the quality. They are really a safety net. Should development miss something, they can catch and, and help. Just like in acrobats, right? Like the safety net. It's it's not there for them to use it. It's yeah. it's there to really catch should something uh, slip out, right? So that's why I feel development should be writing this. And again, the other thing that I feel those tests should be part of the pre-submit as well, right? Before your PR gets submitted. That means if it's breaking, right, you should be adjusting it as well, or you should be adding it as well. Now, there's no rule to have the integration test come together with your feature PR, just like unit tests have to. You can add them a little bit later, but before you launch that feature, that's okay, right? You should be adding them before you launch them. Uh, but that also shortens the feedback loop. And if, if developers are not familiar with testing, um, good testing culture within the team or trying to develop the testing culture with the team can help developers improve their development workflows and their coding as well. Because, you know, the first time you write the integration test, you, you, you basically turn on a different mindset. How can I make sure that it doesn't break given this or that or that? And you might adjust your code accordingly, by the way during writing that. So you're already improving the product. But the next time you're writing a next feature, you can sometimes think about it even ahead of time and start uh, implementing those, um, uh, those things sooner, even before you write the test, that you, you know you need to write the test for it and you know the last time you wrote it or you needed to adjust here and there or you needed to... For example, go for like nulls or other things, right? Like, or undefined values. Like you need to account for them or what if this doesn't go? What if this information is missing? What if this request comes before the other one? Like all of those things, you can now basically account for this even sooner. But then you'll write the integration test anyway to validate that. So that's why I feel like it shortens this feedback loop. The shorter the feedback loop you have, 
the better it is and the faster uh, your product would be developed, I think. So are the QA faults responsible for the quality of a product? So they're, yeah, just because they're, they're not responsible for the quality. For me, they're, they're more like safety net. Uh, and uh, yeah, I appreciate QA work, uh, but it's, it's, it's the quality is the responsibility of the development teams, basically. Yeah. Okay. So now I have some non-technical questions. Uh, what kind of person is Alex? How do you see yourself? Yeah, that's the hardest ones. <laughs> yes, exactly. I know this is the hardest ones. <laughs> But I love this question. So what kind of person is Alex? Um, I'd like to think that... Um, I'd like to think that that I'm helping, I'm trying to help, you know, teams, uh, both at Cisco, for example, and overall in general community uh, to, to achieve their best, right. To, to mentor, to help where I can um, and to help people advance as well, whenever I have time. Right. So obviously the, the teams that I work with at Cisco is, is, is my top priority now. Like that's, that's the work related, right. Um, that is, you know, very high priority to make sure that they're successful, to make sure that we deliver together as a team, high quality products and as a team we grow together. So that's why, you know, even internally at Cisco, I facilitate uh, frequent sessions uh, of knowledge sharing, you know, and those type of things so we can mentor uh, and help each other grow. So that's, that's our work. Um, and in uh, the, the personal, uh, I have three young kids. Uh, <laughs> two of them are twins. So, oh, you know, wow. that also takes um, a lot of time and effort. Uh, How old and, uh, are, of, are they? How old are they? Yeah. Uh, so twins are now four and a half okay. and, and the older one is almost eight. So they are getting easier into, uh, it's, 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 it's a little bit easier to take care of them um, in those like daily routines, but they are, they're growing and they need a different kind of attention now. <laughs> exactly. So how do you, how do you help them to be, successful individuals later on in life. Uh, there is, this is, this is basically the age where you can set up some values, set up some, um, uh, how they think as well about things. So, because again, later on teenagers were you later and, and now I have some control over that. Well, in teenagers, uh, Whatever you put before, that's that's what you get. You can't control their actions past that. You have to rely on them to make good, <laughs> responsible uh, decisions. And if you don't teach it at this stage, it will be too late later. So it, it is putting also some stress, right? Because again, there's three of them, uh, and they are all growing. Yeah, so that's that's the other challenging part. Uh, how to how to succeed there takes a lot of energy. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I know it. I know it. Uh, so, regarding this, do you have some hints for us um, regarding self organization? Yeah, so self organization. I, I I won't pretend that I'm the best organized person, <laughs> self organized person myself. Probably far from it. You're doing um, a lot for community. You are very active and you have free kids. So it's, yeah. and uh, you have a work and yeah, it's a lot of things. I, I think the best thing is it's very easy uh, to, to be caught in, in the, 
reactive way of of doing things. Uh, you know, somebody's pinging you about this, this being late, this is something else, or, or you know, even personal life, oh, we're like missing this, we need to do this, like, like very reactive way. Very easy, uh, especially you have, if you have a lot on the plate. So the best thing is that I suggest, both in personal and in, in, in at work, is being proactive, uh, planning a thing ahead, uh, if you're constantly bombarded with things, uh, book the time in the calendar where you have time to kind of self-organize, plan ahead, see what's important, what's not important. Uh, everybody's saying everything's always important. Uh, that's not true. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, prioritize, prioritize, uh, and and set things up in the proactive way. Um, do some retrospectives too. Uh, I, I like that. All. Uh, if, if we are doing something, you have, you have to dedicate a little bit of time to see how did it go? Uh, what can we do next time a little bit better? Should we do anything better? Is it everything all right? So those things will help you stay on top of, uh, on top of things. And, uh, that will help you get organized a little bit better. So it's a it's a constant challenge though, right? Because there's always more priorities thrown at you. And especially, you know, that depending what your responsibility is with the company and depending how much uh responsibility you have with the family as well, right? Um but you know the, the best way is is to is to still plan ahead. That that's the only thing I can say. And prioritize. Plan ahead, totally agree. Uh, I'm totally agree with that. So, uh, how uh, how does a typical working day at Cisco look like for you? Yeah, the typical work day. So, um, in the mornings, again, we have teams in India as well. Uh, probably like half of our front engineering is in India, uh, and half is in North America. So. Um, I do wake up not very early. I think I used, I used to wake up a lot earlier, but I, you know, seven ish or something to get kids to, to, to school and all I prepare the breakfast for them. I get them to school and then I typically have my a half an hour to an hour walk. I like to, to have that. I can think about things. I don't listen to music when I walk. Um, so it gives me some time to, uh, get myself ready. Come down. Day. Yeah. So even before today's conversation, which started at nine in the morning, you know, I had my 40 minute walk just before that. Um, so that's how I started. And then I typically would go in to see if there are any questions, uh, problems arise during uh, the working times in India. See if something needs to be addressed. Some, some help is needed there. Uh, so, that's that's what I start with. Then I switch to uh, going over some of the PRs. I, I never make my PRs blocking because, again, if I make comments and somebody addresses the comments, uh, it could be a day or two before I get back to them. So I trust teams to address them, and I never block them on that. Because, uh, again, I, it might be that I'll never have a chance to get back to that PR. Um, but I try to do that. Uh, not because I don't trust PRs or something like that, but I'm trying to help uh, with some of the solutions to educate a little bit as well. Uh, and then and then that knowledge that was shared typically stays with that person and that person can comment on the other person's PRs. You know, we, we, we use a style guide, at, uh, for example, TypeScript style guide that we use is, uh, ts.dev slash style. And that's the one that um, just before leaving Google, I open sourced the TypeScript style guide from Google. <laughs> uh, and there was, because uh, I, I felt the world needed that. And luckily uh, Google agreed. So just before you know leaving Google, I kind of open sourced that. Uh, and I reused that in the uh, ts.dev slash style. 
so this is the one that I typically link, you know, that's how we uh, get this uh, education uh, within teams. So PRs then, and then <laughs> typically that's when the meetings start. And, and unfortunately I'm, I'm, I'm in meetings uh, most of the day. Um, and, and the thing is, you know, I can't say that most of them are, are not needed. A lot of the times uh, the feedback from me is needed there. But I also try to block sometimes in between uh, just so I can, again, think about things and plan a little bit uh, because it, I, you know, in, in my role uh, Cisco as a principal, art, uh, principal engineer, I do need to produce other artifacts other than provide some opinions during meetings. So preparing things, preparing some of the talks, preparing or reviewing some of the proposals uh, from uh, other senior folks when they're working on some features. So all of those do require time. So if you don't block that time in your calendar, uh, I guarantee it will be taken. (laughs) And sometimes it's taken regardless if it's blocked or not. Uh, And then it's up to you to decide, hey, if it's good enough or not. Uh, you can always reject, and if uh, organizer that meeting that feels that you are needed, it's up to them to find a better time. Uh, if they feel that they can go without it, that's fine as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so th- that's that's how I try to approach those uh, meetings and uh, and things. And yeah, and then I wrap up as well at the evening, try trying to take a look at the, some of the PRs as well that we're going through the day, maybe help some comments. Uh, so still try to help the teams move forward with that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, the next question is about the pandemic. Did you change your style of working during this time? Um, so even before pandemic started, uh, I was already twice, twice a day working from home at Google because I was still at Google when the pandemic started. And uh, because my office is pretty far, it's, it's, it was all, almost uh, 100 kilometers away. Uh, okay. So it takes hour, hour and a half to get one way. So it's like two, 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 two three hours, hours a day. day. Two, three hours yeah. a day. Uh, and, and yes, yeah, we did have, you know, there's a Google bus that was taking. So it wasn't that bad, right? Wi-Fi and all. Um, but it's still quite far. And you are getting home like seven. And seven is where we start putting kids to bed now. <laughs> so that was one thing that I, like twice a week, I was working from home already anyway. So I had an office set up. I had all the other things. And then I was used to having this semi-remote work. So I feel that works, that, 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 that helped me. That helped me not to be too disconnected. Uh, one thing that we did with the team and we still try, try to do is have at least once a week um, anybody free to attend a coffee meeting or something like that. Uh, just to have, a, have that non-product related conversations just to feel human, <laughs> just yeah. to have that human connection side with the teams as well, not only products and bugs and things like that. Uh, I feel this is important for the teams and I highly recommend any team that uh, doesn't do it to do it, try it. It's, it's quite interesting because you had those conversations when you were in office. Uh, so just having this um during remote work as well. But also, then I switched to Cisco. So I haven't been to Cisco office yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm almost a year at Cisco, but I haven't been to the single office yet. I don't, I don't, I don't have even have my badge yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is funny. And, and at the end, no, when, we, when I saw the state of things and code at Cisco, I was allowed to, uh, hire at that time 20 people 
uh, I was also allowed to hire from anywhere U.S., Canada, regardless of where they live. They don't have to be in the city where the office is, which was very re- liberating. Unfortunately, I can't still do it from, with folks from Europe because I know a ton of great developers who I would have hired in a heartbeat, uh, which, yeah, that, that's a little bit disadvantage. But also, you know, we're trying to work uh, with teams at least with some time zone. And it's not fair for me to ask, for example, folks in Europe to be working like from noon to like eight in the evening, right? That's not also what they would want. Yeah. Uh, so, the, and, and then others too, right? Managers also like their folks to be within somewhat reasonable time from them, uh, not only have like two hour overlap. So those are, uh, but anyhow, getting back to that question, uh, having the entire team remotely, it, now this the pandemic allows allowed us to have that. If, if that didn't happen, I don't think we would have been able to pull that off. I know some companies, some companies were already fully remote even before that. Uh, it wouldn't be definitely not Cisco, and I think even Google still kind of resists this. Uh, by a lot, but again, they have data, and that data proves that if team meet even irregularly, they have a stronger connection, and they can, you know, have better creativity and things like that. Some people might challenge that. I think it, it there is some some value in that as well. Uh, but having remote teams is is also great because otherwise, you there's no way you can have that talent in your team. So. That's what pandemic changed for me. We talked a little bit about that, but what's your work-life balance? Do you have some hints for our audience? Yeah, so uh, some of the work-life balance, uh, I block off chunks not only for, for time to think about things or to have like heads down work, but also block time in my calendar for home with kids. I have that. And if anybody puts things on it and it's not super urgent, I would very frequently decline it. Uh, and, uh, you know, but sometimes people even reach out. There's, there's an example this week. Somebody's reaching out like, hey, Alex, uh, would you be able to join like at 6 p.m. for this meeting, six in the evening? Uh, you have home with kids block. I'm like, that's probably self-explanatory. I won't be able to join, right? Uh, Unless it's super urgent. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, and I I highly recommend this because, again, people don't know what the time zone. I'm in the Eastern time zone in Canada, in Toronto. Uh, We have a number of folks in, in, in Pacific and it's three hour difference, right? So they're in the California area, uh, San Jose, California, like Bay Area. Uh, and they might not even realize that, you know, it's already six in the evening for you because yeah. it's three, in, three for them. So it's very, they can just book something thinking it's still four. And for me, it's already 7 p.m. So to prevent those um, accidents, <laughs> I also block that. So, and I try not to, again, if it's urgent, I would respond. Uh, Sometimes uh, I do, you know, kids go to bed and I would have one hour after as well, uh, just before, you know, teams in India start their work day or they're starting their work day already. um, Just to, again, go over some of the PRs or, or some of the emails as well, right? Um, that's what I would do as well. But again, it's not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of great information, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was um, great to meet you, to see you, to talk to you. And looking forward uh, to seeing you in NG Poland. Um, it's, you're doing the workshop, two days workshop, by the way about Angio Rex 
and um, presentation about testing on NG Poland. So I'm really, really excited. I'm looking forward for it. And for today, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Derek. I I, I love NG Poland, and I've been once in person and once already done also the remote. Uh, it's such a great conference, great organization, uh, and I love it. Uh, it's it's really exciting to see the audience, and I'm I'm happy that you have an, an event also that has in person. I wish I could be there in person. <laughs> My schedule won't allow, unfortunately, but I would I would love to join remotely. So thank you for uh, inviting me. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much, Alex, and see you at NG Poland. Thank you. Yep. See you. Bye.